0: attention to the terminal now boarding on track number eight is train number one the all aboard podcast today's excursion into transportation excellence and i am your conductor phil bell pb chris mr 645 coming to you from the e hunter harrison chair at the bell institute for advanced railroad studies where there are no degrees because the learning never ceases and as always i'm behind this the brunswick green plb microphone and i'm happy to bring you to the day's, there I should say this year's, first Train Book Thursday. So yip, 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 yahoo, and we've got a great show for you already on tap. So today we're actually going to be talking about um, a book that I've become a very big fan of, Greg M. Turners, William and Henry Walters. Make sure I get the full title here. William and Henry Walters, father and son founders of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. Right here. It's a paperback. Um, Actually, very well done. And it has the purple, which is critically important because purple is, of course, the color most associated with the Atlantic Coastline. Now, uh, let me get you. I know you saw my my actual book but this is it here on uh on Amazon and what we'll do is we will have a link in the description below so uh you can see it's selling for only 953 and actually I got my copy from Larry Goolsby who was at a train show in Gaithersburg, Maryland last year and the minute I saw that I said I absolutely have to get this because for so many years I had grown up uh reading or hearing about william and henry walters so william thompson walters was the founder of the atlantic coastline his son henry walters did a lot of the operation of the railroad and led the company for many years until he passed away in the early 1930s and he was followed by his nephew man named lyman delano and if you think about the name delano um you've probably heard it as in Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So that gives you an idea of how well connected and influential in business and politics that both William and Henry Walters were. But here's the crazy part. Neither of them were or are incredibly well known. In fact, for all they did in business and industry, what they're known the best for is for their art collection, which you can find at the Walters art museum in Baltimore. Now, Before we get going too far, I want to say um, we're going to be doing these train book Thursdays once a month, at least the beginning on the first Thursday of the month. So the next one will be on Thursday, February the 1st. So what I want you to do is please send your suggestions. Uh, And your thoughts on these audio reviews and video reviews Because you can hear them either on our audio podcast Or here on Rumble and YouTube Let us know what you think Let us know what books you'd like us to cover I've got a whole stack In fact, you can see, look behind me I've got a ton But I want to make sure that we're responsive to My audience, my fellow Robert Barons, who really uh, know what you're looking for in terms of what you're reading about in trains. I also want to say this has been inspired by John Tamney, who runs the Parkview Institute. I've had a chance to work with him. Uh, He also edits Real Clear Markets, which is one of the premier market sites. So whether you're talking about railroads or money or real estate or otherwise, Real Clear Markets has it. He's an amazing political economist. So check out his work and we'll include links to uh, that in the description as well. Now, getting back to the book here, uh, William and Henry Walters, father and son founders of the Atlantic coastline railroad. It was published by, uh, let's see, make sure we get this right. Page publishing of Connie Lake Pennsylvania. And that is located to the west, Southwest of Meadville, Pennsylvania. And I figured, you know what? There are two important things that have come from Meadville, Pennsylvania. The first one, Sharon Stone. That's right, Sharon Stone. You know, besides, I figured, what's going to make this more enthusiastic and interesting as a podcast? It's showing you a beautiful woman, and there you go, Sharon Stone from Basic Instinct. The other thing that was noteworthy in Meadville and near Conneaut Lake was the Erie-Lackawanna Railroad. They had their major car shops in Meadville. The shops actually still stand. The line there is operated by Norfolk Southern as part of its Meadville line. Uh, Portions of it are actually owned by the Western New York and Pennsylvania, which was part of an agreement that stemmed from the New York, Susquehanna, and Western's involvement in the 1990s where they ended up getting a piece of the line although not all of it. So a small portion is actually owned by the Western New York and Pennsylvania, whereas the majority of it's owned by Norfolk Southern, and Norfolk Southern has trackage rights over the portions that it doesn't own. And all of that, of course, stems from what? Conrail's downgrading of infrastructure. That, of course, we'll cover in future episodes. But there you have it. Page Publishing is uh, responsible for this book. Now, to talk about the author, greg turner a little bit so his background is interesting so he comes from the railway and locomotive historical society and he has actually done a lot of different books uh some examples include railroads of southwest florida and journey into florida railroad history as well as connecticut railroads and illustrated history and for the connecticut railroads book he did receive several and awards for it. So he's somebody who's very accomplished and knows his stuff when he's talking about railroads, particularly those in Florida or that serve Florida. So um, the book is 116 pages long, and then added to that are five pages of notes together with a seven page bibliography. As you'd expect from someone who was working with the Railway and Locomotive Historical Society, and I believe he was actually leading it, it's incredibly well-researched. And it starts with William Thompson Walter's birth in 1819 in Liverpool, Pennsylvania, which is in the Harrisburg area. Now, I want to stress a little bit here why that is so important, because it is very, very difficult, largely because we didn't have as much in the way of systems of record keeping as we do now to understand the beginnings of a lot of these figures. Now we'll talk about somebody like a Thomas Jefferson or Ben Franklin and so on because they were so well known and because they came from very prominent families, it was easy to in some ways, whether it's acquire their papers or look through them, or there was a family Bible or something. And many, many historians have dug into these individuals over the years. That's why we know so much. But when it comes to somebody who might be important, but is somewhat lesser known, like William Thompson Walters, that's much harder. So that shows you the depth to which uh, Turner went in order to do this. He stresses one of the most notable things about both William Thompson and Henry Walters. And like I said, they kept a low profile. If you really think about it, what do you know most about the Atlantic Coastline Railroad? You know they painted their uh, locomotives purple, silver, and gold, although that, of course, came after Henry Walters was dead and long after William Thompson was. You know that they owned the Louisville and Nashville, which we'll get into, or I should say controlled the Louisville and Nashville. You know they were a prominent railroad, but you don't know a whole lot about the people that founded them. That's why. Now, the discussion of William's early life talks a lot about what many americans from the 1800s might have experienced which was working in an early industrializing economy so william thompson walters born in 1819 remember this was not all that long after the country's founding number one and number two we still had not had the full impact of the industrial revolution coming to america it was on its way And actually, William Thompson Walters, according to the book, managed the first smelting mill in America to produce iron in coal-fired furnaces. Now, I'm not entirely sure how true that is because you have to remember uh, several things. First is that a lot of different people have similar ideas, and a lot of different people will have similar ideas at similar times because there are needs that have to be met. So while Reebok might be the one that patented the Reebok pump and got it out there, we don't know how many other people came up with the idea of being able to actually pump your shoes up in order to make them fit better. We don't know how many people came up with uh, the idea of the smelting mill or how many others might there have been at the time in America, but... We do know that William Thompson, thanks to this book, is credited with managing that facility. Although the book also says that not too long after that, he relocated to Baltimore because the work was rather difficult. So I'm not sure if that is a commentary on the way that work was done in those in that era where you would have management being much more engaged in the process of doing the work as opposed to just simply watching things go by and advising those who are conducting the labor or if he did not have that high a position there, which would guide him to say, well, you know what? This is difficult work. Even though I may be managing, I want to get out. So he went to Baltimore and this would be, his home for much of the rest of his life. And he started working with a fellow Baltimorean, Samuel Hazelhurst, and that's an example of how he would typically do business. While he did a lot of very important things, uh, he almost always had some form of partner uh, in the business with him and someone who was prominent. So we might look at someone like Elon Musk today, and Elon Musk most certainly has partners in Tesla and SpaceX and X formerly known as Twitter, but in a lot of cases, those partners are more or less subordinate. Whereas he is taking the lead in running those, and in the case of publicly traded companies like Tesla, most certainly very subordinate if you're a shareholder. Um, but Walters tended to have, if not equal partnerships, significant partnerships with people like Hazelhurst. Later on, he opened uh WT Walters and Company, which became a manufacturer and distributor of liquor. Now, what I really enjoyed about the book is how he makes sure to show the lives of William Thompson and Henry Walters in context, especially as it goes to the discussion of William Walters' feelings on Maryland's potential secession from the Union during the Civil War time. He talked about how it was critical to secede in order to maintain commerce and everything that had been built up, in Baltimore. And quite frankly, I think he may have been right with that because you've got to really think about uh even if we look, we're looking at today the commercial and industrial patterns and how cities are related to each other, Baltimore, although it is much more in a northerly area, it does not quite have the same relationships with places like Philadelphia. Uh, as new york does so therefore so much more of the commerce not only in that day and still now was much more centered to the south so Walter suggesting william walters suggesting that hey yeah i should probably secede, made perfect sense in order to preserve that economic order that everyone whether you're talking about the slaves or you're talking about the people who were Uh, capitalists and industrialists like William Walters themselves were invested in in some form. So um, the other thing that he points out here is some of the early rail investments by William Thompson Walters. And those are the Baltimore and Susquehanna Railroad, which was later rolled into the Northern Central. Those are two railroads that would ultimately become part of the Pennsylvania Railroad. And that makes for a little bit more interesting discussion later on when we talk about some of the larger forays. Now, after the war between the states, which is what some people call the Civil Wars, the book talks about that more aggressive involvement in railroading and Walter's desire to see a railroad that connected Richmond, Virginia with Charleston, South Carolina. And he wanted to do that for several reasons. First of all, he had been also heavily involved in the perishables trade. So you're thinking about the results of agriculture, what was grown, what was sold. A lot of it then as now was grown in the Southeast and it was coming up through the Mid-Atlantic and Baltimore to be sold in Northern markets. So Walters wanted a way to streamline this and make this more effective, hence his interest in doing so. Uh, And so that led to what we talked about in episode, I believe it is four, uh, where we discussed the Atlantic coastline and its beginnings. So we'll share a link on that up uh, from that episode in the description. So you can go back and take a look, uh, But this leads us to chapter three, which I find to be the most interesting in the entire book, where they talk about the Southern Railway Security Company, which was a failed effort to put together, as it sounds like, a holding company to control a variety of railroads in the southeast, including the Richmond and Petersburg that we talk about in episode four, as well as the Northeastern Railroad and several other properties. Now, eventually, a lot of those railroads would become part of the Atlantic coastline, uh, but the southern railway security company didn't make that happen however what led to the southern railway security company it wasn't just henry excuse me william thompson walters desire to be a big player in the movement of these goods it was the desire of the pennsylvania railroad the pennsylvania railroad the prr to get involved in the southeast And keep in mind, this was a time when business as a whole was what, much, much, much more entrepreneurial. And so therefore you would have someone like the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was then becoming a very strong and established uh, entity in the Northeast, say, hey, wait a second, look, the Northeast is great, but we want to make our mark on other parts of the railroad industry as well. So it's interesting to view Through the lens that Turner provides, how the Pennsylvania Railroad gets involved, how they're able to build relationships with people like the Walters, who they knew from the Northern Central and Baltimore and Philadelphia, but also work with them in a way that was not fully as you might expect today, where, you know, if you want to be involved with this, send your application in and maybe you'll get elevated. These were people who were powerful in their own right, the Walters and other partners. So for them, for the Pennsylvania Railroad to get involved in that and have to cede a substantial amount of its control over what they were hoping to accomplish is very notable. Now, the other part that I think is very interesting about this is the discussion of Henry Plant and the plant system. Now, you'll remember from our discussion of the Atlantic coastline, the plant system operated in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, and I believe it had some uh, connections into South Carolina, but I'll have to check my map to see. That meant this railroad was critical because, sure, William Walters had a great thought of let's connect the, um, the mid-Atlantic Richmond area and eventually Baltimore and so on. Let's connect that with Charleston and the ports there. But as you could see, even early on, the United States was still a growing republic. And the Southeast was the most important growing section of this republic. And so you had a desire of people to not only stop at South Carolina, but to develop Georgia more, and then of course to develop and grow Florida, which has continued to be a very important economic engine for Atlantic Coastline's ultimate successor, CSX. So the discussion of plant is itself the jumping off point for another book, but it's how plant did to develop the state of Florida and also how none of these transactions, which from many other sources seem like they're simple. Okay. Well, Henry uh, plant dies. And then uh, by this time, William and Henry Walters come in and say, okay, well let's buy it and everything's okay. No, there was actually a lot more to this, including a whole drama over how the will was done, the different laws on inheritances, uh, what the families wanted, what the Walters were willing to pay for the plant system. So this actually was something of a you know very dramatic process. And there's nothing to say that had a few things gone a little bit differently, it may have been that not only did the ACL not develop the way that it did, but that the uh, the railroad network in the southeast also may not have developed the way that it did. So let me just take a quick uh side track here just so you remember so that you see a uh, you see the Atlantic coastline route map and some of the areas that I'm talking about because uh, if there's one thing you know about railroading it's that railroading always involves looking at the map so go ahead and take a little look here and it looks like we've had uh, as usual we get some pop-up ads this is coming from uh, trains magazine and we'll also link this map in the description, but you see there Richmond, which is in the Northeast uh, quadrant of this map. Uh, the main line that heads down through the Charleston area, just to the East, excuse me, just to the West of Brunswick, down into Jacksonville, and then to a variety of points in Florida that do not include Miami, but get somewhat close to that area. Then you see, and most of that trackage in Florida was, of course, part of the plant system. Uh, Some of it was developed following the plant system by the ACL itself, but the majority of it was there. And then you look at Georgia and Alabama, and there again, the majority of that trackage was developed by the plant system uh, together with some affiliations that came later. So that gives you an idea of how important uh, Henry Plant was and why so much time and effort is spent to discuss that as part of this book. But Turner does a great job of doing that and really does whet the appetite. So one of the things I'm going to do is actually go out and look for a good book on Henry Plant and uh, discuss that with you later on. Another part that is very critical to the development of the Atlantic coastline and also the discussion of Henry Walters, William Thompson Walters' son, is the uh, affair of the acquisition of the Louisville and Nashville. Now, the Louisville and Nashville became part of the Atlantic Coastline's orbit. If I recall correctly, for a long time, they had about 33 34% of the stock, which gave them control, even if they didn't own everything. This came about because there was a man named John Gates, and he went bet a million, that was his nickname. Uh, He was a stock speculator, a lot like the... Beam stock people are now and he decided you know what i want to go buy some of this stock because he thought the lnn stock was going to have a big pop and ultimately it did but he made a mistake he bought so much of the stock that he actually controlled the company but he didn't want to do that and a lot of the meme stock investors, they don't want to own GameStop. They don't want to own BlackBerry or AMC. They were just looking to make a profit in somehow. Well, the LNN was a meme stock for a while, and then we ended up with a problem. The government was getting involved, and they were saying, whoa, we're not exactly sure we want John uh, Bet-A-Million Gates to control the Louisville and Nashville. Louisville and Nashville certainly didn't want him to be doing that. Uh, as I'm sure. And uh, so in steps JP Morgan. And of course, throughout railroading, we see the fingerprints of JP Morgan on a lot of it, even today. Now we're not talking about the bank that's run uh, by Jamie Dimon today. We're actually talking about the John Pierpont Morgan, JP Morgan himself. He did so much in order to reorganize the railroad network. And um, in subsequent episodes, I'm sure we'll talk about his involvement in creating the Southern Railway and ultimately the North. Norfolk Southern that we know today. But what um, JP Morgan did was broker the sale of the LNN stock to Henry Walters and the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. And so this is what brings the LNN and its status as a coal hauler into the fold of the Atlantic Coastline. Now I want you to think about why that really does matter. First of all, Just from an investment standpoint, and you look at it and you really go through the book, you'll see that at heart, both William Thompson and Henry Walters were business investors. While they had a lot of industries that they were enthusiastic about and a lot of things they were interested in doing, whether we're talking about the alcohol from early on or we're talking about railroads and perishables and so on they had very wide and varied business interests. So it would not have been alien for them, and the book is very good at this, uh, to say, hey, look, we need some way to diversify our investment, even if that diversification didn't mean leaving the railroad umbrella. So buying the LNN brings with it coal traffic. This is something the Atlantic coastline didn't have, at least not in any uh, significant quantity whatsoever, because its lines were largely located from the Piedmont to the fall line. So Virginia Piedmont fall line and down the East coast, eventually getting to Florida. So what does coal do? Well, it provides a more reliable means of income that offsets some of the cyclicality that comes with the a more agricultural or industrial focused um, traffic base that the ACL itself had. So think about this: if you're having a year where the crops don't quite yield, and we all know in Florida that does happen from time to time, whether there is you know some disease that the orange groves catch or there's too much frost or something like that, well, when your railroad is so focused on that traffic, that could mean a dramatic decline in not only your revenues, but your net income as well. And remember, one of the most important things for railroads is to have high revenues, not only because that's what attracts investors to these companies, but also because the high revenues are needed on a daily basis to pay for capital investments and capital improvements in the railroad. Uh, A good example of that is discussed in the book when uh, William Walters does not want to spend the money to get excuse me henry walters does not want to spend the money to get rid of all of the wooden rail cars and he says well look they can stick around for a while but his lieutenants are really really aggressive about that and saying no we need steel rail cars this is important and of course he decides he's persuaded by them and decides to make the capital expenditures to replace as many of the wooden rail cars as possible with steel rail cars, So that's a good example of what I'm talking about, but that's something that goes on on a daily basis. So you might be a railroad that is doing well. You have good revenues and so forth right now, but then what happens when that economic downturn comes? Even a downturn that lasts for a year, maybe a downturn that lasts for a year and a half, whereas the recession might be relatively short, but it takes time for the economy to recover, That means that you will not have as much revenue as you need to fund these expensive things. And then, as now, it was not cheap to buy a rail car. It was not cheap to buy a locomotive. It was not cheap to send a gang of guys. And by the way, in those days, it was a gang of guys. It wasn't just a few guys with some machines. It was guys with spike malls. It was guys... Uh, well, they had spike malls and of course they had to remove the spikes by hand, put the new spikes in by hand, pull the cross ties out by hand and so on. You had to send gangs of guys out to do these repairs, uh, with a lot less in the way of mechanization and anything to help them. So these things were always very, very difficult, uh, and very, very expensive. So that's why it was critical. And so adding the Louisville and Nashville to the Atlantic coastline brought with it this additional source of reliable traffic to go along with what they already had. And then what came along with it, well, the Clinchfield was another railroad that came along with it because the Clinchfield was built as a means of shortening the trip from Charleston uh Savannah area where you had existing ports into the interior of the country in the Midwest. And so it connected with the Atlantic coastline and the Seaboard Airline incidentally on its southern end and the Chesapeake and Ohio on its northern end. Well, The Louisville and Nashville was also a connection. They ended up uh, working with the now parent Atlantic coastline, To form what's called the Clinchfield Railroad Because the actual Clinchfield was the Carolina Clinchfield and Ohio But the Clinchfield Railroad was an operating entity Set up by the Atlantic Coastline And the Louisville and Nashville During the Walters era In order to operate the Clinchfield And this added to that network that the ACL was building Because now in effect If you were bringing cargo off a ship In Charleston or Savannah You were basically taking an all-Atlantic Coastline route into the Midwest, which definitely bolstered their uh, financial prospects and made that company to be the strong operator that it would be for many years to come. And um, finally, it concludes with a recitation of the Atlantic Coastline's performance in the early 20th century uh, that leads right up to the end of Henry Walter's life, I believe, in 1936. Thirty-one, And the book gives a lot of attention to key lieutenants like John Kenley uh, and others who played leading roles in building what is a more modern company. And so you can see over the course of the book how not only does our country and the way that the business community was set up in those days going from being a much more, for lack of a better phrase, uh, swashbuckling company. Um, I, I don't. I, I hesitate to use uh, "wild west" culture because that has the wrong connotation. But uh, much more from a time where you would have families and individual entrepreneurs, like a Henry Plant uh, or William Walters, and a relatively small group of partners build what would become large enterprises into a uh, business world that's dominated more by large procedure-oriented enterprises as the Atlantic coastline became as it started to become a mature company so it is very good in that and i would definitely recommend that you get a copy of it like i said we will link to amazon in the description below we will also add some links uh on our website so that you can go ahead and purchase there uh, a couple of notes that i want to want to talk about after this is after we are done now with uh william and henry walters uh like i said great book Earlier this week, or I should say at the end of last week, Amtrak experienced a major meltdown on the Northeast Corridor because its signal system or the computers that underlie the signal system failed. Now, that's something that I always want to be mindful of and I think is critical for those of us who follow freight and passenger rail. We've now moved in an era where computers play a much, much more uh, integral role in the operation of trains than they ever have before. Now, I know that's true in many ways throughout our entire economy, but it's so critical when we're talking about the movement of goods because I want you to think about this. If this computer that I'm recording the stream on stops working, and let me tell you, it does all the time, uh, it means relatively little overall. It might be a little bit more difficult to finish my work. It might be difficult to do these recordings. I might have to spend, a, you know, a thousand dollars here, a thousand dollars there, but by and large is relatively small impact. A lot of the places where we've seen good success in computerization and digitization has come about in what I call non-mission critical areas. And if you look at the TV behind me, you'll see that most of the equipment there, if a computer stops working, you're going to be able to fire up those locomotives. You're going to be able to take tickets. You're going to be able to move the train down the track. But now that we have positive train control, now that we have so many more computer systems that are, excuse me, signaling systems that are tied into computer networks, many of which were not built for the express purpose and are not necessarily as hardened as they can be to support rail operations, you're going to unfortunately, I believe, see much more of this happen. Now, thankfully, Amtrak got the problem cured in a relatively short period of time, But the impact did reverberate, and we've seen this happen in other parts of the rail industry as well. So what I'm hoping is that we will see over the next few decades, and I do believe it will take decades, uh, an effort to build parallel systems. We must have robust analog systems that are able to be not only safely and uh, effectively operated by those who operate the railroads, but also legally operated, because... For example, one of the problems that I have with positive train control, and to be completely transparent here, I hate positive train control. I think it is one of the worst things that ever happened to railroading. And uh, Barbara Boxer, being the primary sponsor of the bill that brought it to us, is a good example of why she never should have been in Congress in the first place. Needless to say, I can't stand positive train control. But one of the problems with it is that While it does not have to be legally a digital system, it became a digital system through the regulatory process. And so now, again, we're asking people that don't necessarily have experience in railroading, and those are the Silicon Valley nerds, to help determine how the railroad operates. And that is something that is going to take a lot of time for them to understand and be able to integrate. So having the legal ability to do things, to accomplish the same goals, uh, legislative goals, when it comes to safety with an analog standpoint is critical to maintaining the safety of this system. And that is something that we absolutely must be mindful of for years to come. So I will leave you now. Uh, I thank you for joining with me to talk about William and Henry Walters, father and son founders of the Atlantic coastline railroad. I thank you for giving me a little bit of time here to rant and rave about why positive train control is bad and why we must retain the ability to utilize analog control systems to operate our trains and that we should not be worshiping at the feet of the digital God all the time. Uh, We will have our next episode on Monday. That's Money Day. Money Day, January 8th. So stay tuned for that at 12.05 p.m. on all of our outlets. And as always, please email me, info at allaboard.media. That's I-N-F-O at allaboard.media. If you have any comments, suggestions, you think I'm a complete idiot, or you want to know how I look as good as I do when I'm coming to you here from the E. Hunter Harrison chair at the Bell Institute for Advanced Railroad Studies. So we'll see you down the main line, and I hope you have a great day.